This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess any sins in the privacy of your priesthood in silent prayer to God the Father. First John 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess, which means to identify, admit, or acknowledge our sins to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship with God, ready to study His Word, ready to concentrate on the teaching of the Word under the uh, ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for the fact that we live in a nation where we are guaranteed the freedom through our system of laws to be able to do this. And despite the fact that there are many enemies to Christianity, both within our nation and those that are outside the nation, we pray that you would um, continue to protect us, continue to provide us with these freedoms. Father, we thank you for those who have gone before those who have served in the military, those who have fought and given their lives, that we might have these freedoms. Freedom is not something to be taken lightly. Freedom is purchased in each generation by those in that generation who are willing to uh, pay the ultimate price in order to preserve those freedoms which are bequeathed to us from our forebears. Father, we thank you for this day that we celebrate as Memorial Day to remember those who have uh, purchased our freedom. Father, we pray that we might, as a nation, not forget this, that we might be mindful of the fact that freedom is costly. It is not free. There are those who have uh, given everything, including their life, in order that we might have the freedom to gather together today to study your word. Father, we thank you that you are the God who controls history, that despite the fact that our nation is under constant threat, that there are thousands who would do us serious harm, and that there are the weapons and the tools and the instruments to completely devastate this nation. We know that you are the God who protects us, you are the God who is in control of history, and that our security ultimately rests in you and in your plan. Father, we pray that you would continue to protect this nation, 
to preserve us, that we may stand as a bulwark, as a source of strength and ally to Israel, and that we may continue to set forth, uh, send forth missionaries throughout the world who are bringing people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for us today that we might uh, be prepared to study, to concentrate, to focus on your word, to be responsive to what the Holy Spirit teaches us, and that we might be responsive to that challenge. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Today is Memorial Day 2004. It's an opportunity for us to carry on a tradition that began after the war between the states, or what we down in Texas always call the War of Northern Aggression. It was originally called Decoration Day. It grew out of the Civil War, and by 1865, both towns and villages in the north and in the south had organized groups that would go to uh, cemeteries for those who had given their life during the war and would put flowers and other decorations on their graves to remember what they had given in defense of their respective nations. By the 1868, there was a General Order Number 11 given by General John Logan, who was the uh, National Commander of the Grand Army of the Republic, in order to uh, set aside the day of the 30th of May in 1868 to decorate the graves of both Union and Confederate soldiers at Arlington National uh, Cemetery. It wasn't until 1873 that the first state officially recognized this holiday. That was New York. In the South, they went their own way. They had their own decoration day. And it wasn't until the early part of the 19th century that uh, the, the nation unified in celebrating or recognizing uh, the decoration day uh, as, as on coming on May 30th. And in 1971, Congress passed a three-day weekend holiday act so that the uh, last Monday in May would be recognized as Memorial Day, changing it from May 30th to the last Monday in May. It is a time for us to honor those who have served our nation, specifically those who gave their lives that we might be free. Freedom is not something that is free. Freedom is something that is purchased at the cost of human lives. The generation that is not willing to die for freedom is a generation that cannot maintain freedom and is due to be enslaved by either a foreign power or by their own uh, tyrannical government. Each and every generation has this test. Each and every generation has a responsibility to preserve the freedoms that have been given to them by those who have gone before. But when we talk about freedom, when we talk about the fact that this nation has freedom, and we sing songs and we say the Pledge of Allegiance and we use words such as freedom and liberty, we have to understand what these terms mean. 
And as we've studied so many times here at Preston City Bible Church over the years, there are different ways in which you can come to a knowledge or understanding of, of what anything means. You can either define something apart from God or you can let God define it. And we believe that every discipline in life, every intellectual category must begin with a recognition of the authority of God. God is a creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And that means that if we are going to understand anything within creation, whether it is a concrete object such as a tree or a flower or an animal, or whether it is an abstract object such as freedom, honor, liberty, or integrity, or whether it is a social structure such as marriage or family or government. To understand these things, we must start with the Scriptures. We can't just start with human experience. If you pick up any political science textbook, that's where it starts. They'll start with what has worked and what hasn't worked in history. You pick up economic textbooks that talk about different economic systems, uh, socialism, uh, communism, capitalism. It starts with what works, what has happened historically, the, the trial and error uh, systems to develop uh, these economic or political systems that give the greatest productivity or the greatest amount of freedom. But how do they understand the basic concepts of freedom? How do they understand what liberty really is? See, liberty doesn't get its meaning from an analysis of what works. That's pragmatism. It doesn't derive its meaning from looking at systems that produce the most uh, economic productivity. It begins by understanding what, free, what freedom is and what destroys freedom, and that comes from a study of the Word of God. We must always start from the Word of God as our uh, framework. So when we look at freedom in the Scriptures, it immediately takes us back to what we have defined as the first divine institution. In our study of Genesis, we've seen that God established five divine institutions, which are social structures that must be observed in any and all human relationships in order for there to be productivity in that society. And the first and foremost is the divine institution of responsibility. It is not the, the emphasis is not on freedom per se, but is on accountability and responsibility, that man was created with the ability to choose, to choose to obey God or to disobey God. And when Adam was created and placed in the garden, he had a perfect environment. That environment included freedom. But freedom wasn't the ability to do whatever Adam wanted to do. Freedom was the ability to be successful under the authority of God. As long as he followed God's mandate, specific, and there was only one in the garden, which was to not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as long as Adam operated within that framework, he had freedom, success, stability, and happiness. But once he violated divine authority, the result was slavery, slavery to sin. And the entire human, na- uh, human race was plunged into this slavery. And so the inclination, the predilection of the human heart was towards 
uh, autonomy. Trouble was, everybody wanted to be independent. Nobody wanted to recognize any authority other than their own desires, their own inclinations. And so there had to be an imposition of, of some sort of overruling authority. Now, authority itself isn't wrong. There was always authority. There's authority within the structure of the Godhead, as we've seen. God the Father is in authority. God the Son carries out the wishes of the Father, as does the Holy Spirit. They are equal in essence. Yet there is a, an authority structure. After the fall, the authority structure for governing human relations was the family. The father was the head of the family, and it was a patriarchal system. And this system continued between the fall and the flood. After the flood, as we've seen in our study on Genesis, God established human government, delegated human government as seen in the provision to, uh, to apply capital punishment to those who take human life. The most extreme form of punishment that a human being can be involved in, in giving is that of taking the life of another human being in a legal, judicial manner. And in order to do that, you have to, that necessarily involves a system or structure whereby justice can be achieved. And God did not define in Genesis chapter 9 what those governmental structures would be. That was up to man to develop. How would we apply that principle of capital punishment? And so since capital punishment is the most extreme of all forms of punishment, that necessarily entailed other forms of government, other forms of uh, of. Uh, of, of controlling criminal uh, behavior. So when we look at the concept of freedom, we see that freedom has to begin with an understanding of, of spirituality and the relationship with God, that freedom was first lost because man sinned. So there is a, a relationship between freedom and Spiritual, spirituality. There is a relationship between freedom and slavery. Because of sin, slavery entered into the human race. We're enslaved to our sin nature. Over time, as some groups of people or some individuals sought to exert their control and their power over others, the result was uh, tyranny, either in the family, in the home, or as governments and nations developed in the uh, post-Diluvian environment, the period after the flood, we see, and we'll see this in our study in Genesis 10, the development of despotic regimes related to carrying out all of the desires of the, all, of, of the sin nature. As governments became more and more powerful, more and more restrictive, they would enslave certain segments of society in order to carry out uh, their wishes. So slavery is a negative consequence of sin, and the sin nature of all human beings is the result or, or, or produces tyranny. So any government system that is going to have freedom must control the tyranny that is present in the human heart. The first example we get, we have in Scripture of a legal system that provides perfect freedom is in the Mosaic Law. 
So if we're going to start with a political theory, and this is what our forefathers did, they understood these principles. The, the concept of divine institutions, per se, goes back to, uh, theologically at least, to an, uh, the development of political theory by the Puritans uh, in England as they were dealing with the uh, legal system of the divine, uh, divine right of monarchy uh, in England and a recognition that there needed to be a guarantee of individual freedoms and individual uh, responsibilities. So they developed these ideas and began to work out an understanding of government theory. Now, as a, historically, this was a combination of both human viewpoint thought and divine viewpoint thought. Nothing in this life ever achieves any sort of pure divine viewpoint or biblical thinking. It just doesn't happen. Don't get mired in some form of idealism. But what we have to recognize is that all human uh, institutions and structures are going to be affected by the fact that the people who are involved are sinners. And therefore, there have to be certain inherent controls in order to restrict the sin nature, while at the other, on the other hand, allowing people the uh, freedom to both succeed and to fail. And to the degree that a person is allowed to succeed, they should be allowed to fail. If they are, if their freedom to fail is restricted, then their freedom to succeed will be restricted. And this comes right out of Scripture. This is a problem with taxation. This is a problem with welfare states. Is because you try to, and governmental theory is that you 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 somehow limit the negatives, so that when people are irresponsible, when people fail. When people are lazy, when they're not industrious, when they're engaged in uh, irresponsible or criminal behavior, then, well, we're, we're going to limit the consequences of that so that they don't, uh, uh, they don't suffer too much financially. And as a result of that, you have to provide some sort of financial uh, safety net. Where do you get the money? Well, you take it from people who are extremely responsible and productive and energetic, and you penalize their success by taking away from them so that you can limit the failure or the consequences of the failure of those who are uh, acting irresponsibly. So all of this works itself out in, in, in terms of theories of taxation, theories of uh, providing welfare or some sort of safety net. Now, even the Scripture, if you go back to the Mosaic Law, there's a clear recognition that government should provide some sort of assistance to widows and orphans and those that are uh, impoverished. So the Bible doesn't just leave, just, just have a, a, a complete disregard for those who are failures as a framework for understanding uh, a compassion at some level, but it should not be done in a way that destroys initiative and responsibility and, and productivity of those who are more responsible and those who are energetic. We also see from the Mosaic Law that government has a right to restrict criminal behavior. 
Government has a right to uh, protect itself from foreign enemies. And so you go through the Mosaic Law and, fr- and you derive from the Mosaic Law principles that relate to freedom, principles that relate to economics. There's a recognition in the Mosaic Law that people have a right to private ownership of property. And private ownership of property is at the core of what we know of as, as capitalism. But uh, I was in, involved in a conversation this last week. A friend of mine asked me a question. He was, involved, he was in a conversation with a, a Christian who had a problem with capitalism, which he called greedy capitalism. And we have to recognize that not all all. Uh, economic systems. There's no economic system per se that is espoused in Scripture. I mean, you turn the pages of Scripture, you'll never see the word capitalism. That may be a surprise to some of you. But there's a clear recognition of certain principles in the Scripture that are more consistent with capitalism than with other systems of economics that have been developed. You have the private ownership of property. You have the responsible use of property and being able to pass on an inheritance to your heirs so that uh, your productivity is not taken from you by a government. There's warnings about uh, governments who will be involved in excessive taxations. There's all kinds of different uh, principles that are given in the Scripture that make it clear that, that, that the, what I would call a... Um, Free market economy is going to be the most productive system because it recognizes the first divine institution of personal responsibility and accountability. As soon as you t- start limiting the negative consequences that people will, will experience from their own bad economic decisions, then you start control, trying to control everything and you start acting uh, as if you're God. Now, what we have to be careful of is identifying certain economics uh, frameworks as being Christian. You know, a lot of capitalism, uh, the capitalistic thought in the late 19th century was influenced by social Darwinism. And there were a lot of capitalists who utilized the principle of the survival of the fittest as a means to just control, put down labor. There was no sense of, of compassion or care for the worker. And as a result of their abuse of power, their tyrannical use of capital, you had an equal and opposite reaction among labor, and that gave birth to those wonderful institutions we all know and love called labor unions. And labor unions are a real problem today. And But initially there was some justification for them because there were employers and there were business owners who were operating in a way that was that lacked any sense of compassion. They had taken a good principle in terms of capitalism, and then they were wedding it to pagan social Darwinism. And the result was you had an abusive, tyrannical, tyrannical system. So we have to start with Scripture. You can't go out and just start with some sort of uh, autonomous empirical study of, 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 of uh, economics and what works. The Bible defines what freedom is. The Bible defines how and gives us that framework within which we can develop uh, laws and a system that produces uh, freedom 
it can produce productivity. Furthermore, the Bible clearly recognizes that freedom in a nation and for a nation to maintain its freedom and its identity and to be free from foreign domination, then that nation must be able to raise a military and to utilize that military in order to protect itself from foreign aggression. And foreign aggression does not always mean that you have to wait until you're attacked before you respond. Foreign aggression may entail that you have to strike first in order to protect yourself. But the Bible clearly recognizes the validity of the military, the validity of just war, and that freedom is gained and preserved through military victory. But ultimately, freedom is a matter of what's going on in the soul of the citizenry. Because once the citizens of a nation lose their orientation to either the establishment principles of Scripture or to their relationship to God, then they begin to lose the capacity to enjoy that freedom. And an internal rot develops. And as that internal rot works itself out, it begins to destroy all of the different divine institutions so that you get this this, uh, internal collapse that renders a nation incapable of fighting to preserve their freedom and unwillingness to fight to preserve their freedom and an inability to perceive where the danger lies. Because the more a culture becomes divorced from God and separated from a divine viewpoint uh, understanding of history and reality, the more they will fail to properly recognize what is going on in the world around them. And if you're not operating on the basis of reality, and if you're not taking into account all of the facets that the Bible talks about as the key mechanics to history, then you are doomed to failure in whatever endeavor you're, you're involved in because you are no longer operating on the basis of reality. And this is the danger that we see facing our nation today. As our nation has become more and more divorced from reality, divorced from the Scripture, where we reject the concepts of absolutes, reject the concept of a God who is involved in human history, reject the biblical analysis of man as being inherently evil, that man is a sinner. The Scripture says... The the heart of man is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? That if your starting point isn't a recognition of man as a sinner, then you're going to make egregious mistakes in legislation and foreign policy. And this is a problem that we face today because there are many on the left. There are many who are politically correct. There are many like those in Europe who have completely lost touch with reality who don't want to fight a war. This was evidence most clearly back in 1938 at Munich. The assumption is that that the enemy can't be as bad as you think they are. They're not really that evil. They don't really want to destroy everything. And because we don't have a proper understanding of sin and evil to inform our comprehension of the depravity of the enemy, then we 
attribute to him, we have a tendency to think he's better than he is, that he won't really do what he claims to do, that evil isn't that destructive. And so we're not prepared to go to the extremes we need to in order to protect ourselves from the aggression of truly evil people. And to the credit of our president, he recognized after September 11th and that what the real issue was, and he continuously referred to the enemy as evildoers. And the whole concept biblically of evil immediately brings into focus the broader understanding of the angelic conflict. And so if we're going to have a true and proper understanding of reality and of what is happening in our nation, it has to fit within a concept of history. See, people who forget history are doomed to repeat it. And people who do not pay attention to their history will probably not have a future because you will make the same mistakes again and they will be self-destructive. And unfortunately, this is seen over and over again in the cycle of civilizations. There are four elements that characterize the progress of history. And all of this really fits into, that I'm talking about this morning, really fits into our study of Revelation, which we began two or three weeks ago. Because what we see in the book of Revelation is the culmination in human history of the outworking of negative volition, human rejection of divine authority, and the rejection of these principles. And eventually God will remove the restrainer, according to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. The restrainer, which is the Holy Spirit who restrains evil, will be removed, and there will be literally all hell break forth on earth. That Revelation teaches us and has informed Christianity that history is moving somewhere. It is directional. Now, this is a uniquely Christian concept. If you are, if you're a pagan, depending on, and by pagan I mean a non-Christian operating on non-Christian thought, then throughout the years, history, uh, various pagan systems have looked at history. They either see it as just an eternal, ongoing cycle, or they see it as just a never in a uh, 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 process with no beginning and no ending. But the Scripture teaches that history is moving somewhere, and it is moving towards an ultimate resolution and accountability before the Creator of the universe, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And what the book of Revelation gives us is the details into that eventual resolution and accountability. And in our study, we will look again and again at various trends that go on through history. And in the church age, there's no fulfillment of prophecy, but there are ongoing trends. There have been the rise and the fail, uh, rise and collapse of various nations, various empires, all of which uh, relate to the same basic principle. So I want to outline four basic elements in history that must be uh, that must be kept in mind whenever we are thinking about uh, what's going on in the world around us. 
Four basic concepts. And these are things that you will never hear in any history classroom or any political science classroom. And yet these are the basic fundamental mechanics of history. I remember years ago when I had to uh, do take a doctoral course in historiography. Historiography is the philosophy of history. And I had to read about uh, 40 different works by major historians in all kinds of different different camps from Marx uh, to uh, Spengler, Toynbee, many other world-class historians, and we had to look at their works and say, okay, do they, what's their ultimate view of history? Is it going somewhere? Is it going nowhere? What's their ultimate philosophy? Is it just cyclical? Uh, what is it? Second thing you'd ask is what, is, what are the causative factors in history? What, are, what is it, according to this historian, moves history from one stage to the next? What are the causative factors in history? And that's what I'm talking about in this section. What are the causative factors in human history that determine where history is going and how nations rise and fall? The first is the attitude of a people toward the Jews. It's the attitude of people towards the Jews, and this goes back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 in the Abrahamic covenant. And this is just a summary in Genesis 12 of the Abrahamic covenant. Covenant itself is not established until about chapter 17. But here in verse 2, or 2 and 3, God tells Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And what you have in that second clause, the curse clause, is a is two different uses of are two different words in Hebrew. The first means to treat lightly, and the second means to condemn harshly. So God is promising Abraham that his descendants will have a specific protection from God. So the attitude of people through history toward the Jews is a determinative factor. When a nation is anti-Semitic, God is going to destroy that nation. A classic example is what happened during the time of the Babylonian captivity. God raised up the Babylonian nation to punish Israel for their apostasy, for their disobedience, for their rejection of God, for their idolatry. And Habakkuk is the story of one prophet who is involved in challenging the nation with their disobedience to the Mosaic Law. And if you read the initial chapter, the the opening chapter of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is saying, God, how long are you going to let this people get away with their disobedience? They're not trusting you. There's all, all kinds of sin is going on. They're disobeying the law left and right. How long are you going to let this go on? And then God answered, Habakkuk, and he said, well, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, and they're going to come in and, and destroy the nation. And Habakkuk's response is, the Chaldeans? Well, they're just a bunch of pagan unbelievers. How in the world can you use them to destroy us? 
See, the point is, God is going to discipline His people, and by that I mean the nation Israel, any way He wants. But what happened is the Chaldeans gave themselves over to anti-Semitism. See, you can destroy a nation without... uh, They could have destroyed Israel without being anti-Semitic as a military conquest. But when they gave themselves over to to anti-Semitism, then God destroyed the Babylonian Empire and replaced them with the Persian Empire. And it was Cyrus who was going to issue the decree for the Jews to go back to the land. So the first element in history is the attitude of people towards the Jews. The second is the attitude of a people toward the gospel and toward God. Actually, I'm going to add a fifth, a a well, I'm going to make it part of a fourth category. Second is their attitude toward the gospel, how they respond to the gospel, and if there is a, 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 what the percentage of believers are in that nation. As, and this recognizes the principle, as goes the believer, so goes the nation. A third factor in history is the dynamics of the angelic conflict. Now, see, that's not subject to our direct observation. We can't see what is going on in the realm of the angels. We don't know what is taking place, what's transpiring. That's behind the curtain. But yet we know that from from various passages in Scripture that what takes place in human history is affected by what is taking place in the angelic conflict. And we see that curtain brought back in Revelation. Because in a way that's, that's uh, different from this present dispensation, when you get into the tribulation, there will be the angels will become visible, demons will become visible, and this interaction between the angelic realm and the natural realm will become obvious. But we don't see that today. Nevertheless, that is a causative factor in human history. And fourth... Uh, and these are not in uh, any particular order. The fourth factor is volition. Volition in two areas. And that is a recognition of human responsibility in a, in a civilization that is, that is uh, not necessarily positive to the gospel. You can have a civilization that recognizes human responsibility, recognizes the divine institutions. Now, the divine institutions are, first of all, human responsibility, secondly, marriage, third, family, fourth, human government, and fifth, nations. These are all established by God, as we've seen in those first 11 chapters of Genesis. And when a nation starts violating those institutions and they break down, then that society is going to collapse on the inside. And and we've seen this in our nation for the last 150 years, more and more influences that take away a true accountability for bad decisions. And we see this happening in the home where parents do not adequately discipline children. It then bleeds over into the education system where teachers are not allowed to properly discipline children or they end up with children that have uh, all manner of disciplinary problems. And then you have to call in the state-certified psychologist who labels them with various categories of, of behavioral problems that stick with those kids all their life. It's not their fault. 
It's somebody else's fault. It's it, it's it's some other thing. They, oh, they, they, and you tag it with some some disease name. They're they're manic depressive or they're this or they're that. And see, it's not their fault. But the Bible clearly teaches that even these emotional or psychological problems are the consequences of negative volition, the consequences of spiritual failure. And so by failing to understand certain spiritual concepts, it works itself out in the destruction of these divine institutions. Then, of course, we have the problem with, with, with marriage and the breakdown of marriage today and this, the pressure to recognize uh, homosexual marriage. And that will lead to a collapse of the nation eventually. We have to take our stand against that. And trust me, that is the battle that is on the horizon and is very present here since we're just south of the pagan state of Massachusetts that has already recognized uh, gay marriage. So you have the issue of volitional responsibility on the one hand and then spiritual facets on the other hand, which has to do with your response to the gospel and how believers are responding to the gospel and, and spiritual growth. So those are the factors that influence economics, they influence politics, they influence uh, your perception of what domestic problems are and how they should be handled, they influence your understanding of law and punishment. If you treat man as a, as a sinner that has a depraved heart, and the purpose, and you look at, at law from the pr- perspective of the Mosaic law, then you're going to see that, that um, criminal behavior should be punished. That there is the purpose for a judicial system is to punish crime, not to rehabilitate the criminal. Rehabilitation comes out of a worldview that rejects total depravity, believes in the inherent goodness of man. But the Bible teaches the inherent evil of man and that the only solution to, God, to man's problem is a, ultimately a spiritual solution, uh, regeneration as a result of faith alone in Christ alone, accepting Christ as Savior. So these elements are crucial in history, the attitude of a people toward the Jews, attitude of a nation toward the gospel, the dynamics of the angelic conflict, and the attitudes of a nation towards the, let's just say, the divine institutions, primarily uh, personal accountability. Let me say a few things about anti-Semitism. We live in a horrendous time. We will see anti-Semitism reach its greatest evil in the period of the tribulation because the, the ultimate purveyor of anti-Semitism is Satan. God made a promise to Abraham and to the Jews, which he reiterated to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, that God would give them a specific piece of real estate and that they would be a prosperous nation. That has never happened in human history. So what is at stake is the integrity of God, the character of God, and the ability of God to fulfill his promise. Now, at this stage, you might say the stake has been driven into the heart of Satan's plan at the cross. Satan was defeated at the cross when Jesus Christ died there for our sins, and then he was buried, rose again, ascended to heaven, where he was elevated above all principalities and authorities and powers, a threefold term that recognizes the hierarchy of the demonic forces. But Satan's last attempt, last hope 
uh, the, the straw at which he grasped desperately is to destroy the Jews. Because if he can destroy Israel, wipe out every Jew to the last man before God fulfills his promise to Israel, then Satan can say, see, I won. God can't even control history. God can't bring about, can't fulfill his promises, and a, a creature can do a better job than he can. And that is his basic attempt. Anti-Semitism, the hatred of Jews, has always been fueled by a, a hatred of God and a rejection of God. And Satan is behind all anti-Semitism. Now, we live in a world today where anti-Semitism is on the rise. Now, it's not the kind of anti-Semitism that was seen in Nazi Germany. Two or three weeks ago when I went to down for uh, to D.C. for Dan's graduation, he and I took the afternoon and went over to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. And if you ever get a chance to go to D.C., I encourage you to go through the Holocaust Museum there. It is a, a sobering time. It is not something you will describe as a high point or fun, but it is something that you should uh, be acquainted with to see the depravity of the human heart. And that is the only thing that can explain that particular uh, virulent form of anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism has... Uh, always been floating around in uh, European history. It is something that has gone along with the theology of, of uh, amillennialism and postmillennialism, which dominated Christianity from about the 4th century A.D. Up until, the, uh, up until and through the Reformation. It wasn't until the post-Reformation period that into the 16th and 17th centuries that you began to realize that with a return to a literal interpretation of Scripture, that God would fulfill his plan to Israel, that Christ would come back before the millennium. And in amillennialism, while it's not inherently anti-Semitic, it teaches that the church replaces Israel. God has no future plan for Israel, no future purpose for Israel. So Israel is no longer significant. And it is within that umbrella of amillennialism that you had the development of the, the blame theory, blaming the Jews for the crucifixion of Christ, something that is absolutely absurd. But all throughout this period, anti-Semitism took a form that was not dissimilar to that of Nazi Germany. It painted the Jews as being subhuman, painted them as a source of all evil and all ill. And whenever a nation... Uh, had an official policy of anti-Semitism, eventually that destroyed their productivity. This happened in Spain after uh, Ferdinand and Isabella ran the, the uh, Moors, the uh, Muslims, out of Spain in 1492. They also turned around and expelled all the Jews. And the Jews were the middle class. They were the foundation for banking and industry. In Spain, and as a result of their expelling uh, the Jews, they destroyed their own middle class, and Spain never had a vibrant economy as develop as a result of that. And the Jews left Spain and they went to England, which during the time of uh, Cromwell in the 17th century opened their doors to the Jews, and they went to uh, Germany, they went to other parts of Europe where 
those economies thrived as a result of the presence of the Jews. Well, in the past, anti-Semitism has taken a particular form, but it has a new form today, and that is anti-Zionism. And it is cloaked now in the guise of, of uh, being against a state of Israel. But nevertheless, it is just as wicked and just as evil. In fact, just recently, or uh, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a rally in France against anti-Semitism. But there was a large group of French Jews who boycotted the rally against anti-Semitism because they, they realized that, that those who were against the anti-Semitism were unwilling to connect their uh, stand against anti-Semitism with a stand against anti-Zionism. And this is the form in which uh, anti-Semitism is being used to justify attacks against the Jews today. In fact, it's been reported that uh, the term Zionist is starting to be used as a pejorative term among teenagers in America. Anti-Semitism is taking some of its worst form today because, today because not only is there a resurrection of some of the neo-Nazi uh, type of material and propaganda on the one hand, but it's being merged with the historic anti-Semitism from Islam on the other hand, and these are coming together to produce a a rationale for blaming Israel. If we just got rid of the Jews and the state of Israel, there'd be peace in the Middle East. It's just all their fault. And this is exemplified in a speech by the French... uh, uh, EU parliamentarian Paul-Marie Coteau, on May 16, 2001, uh, condemned the theocratic excesses of the religious state of Israel. And he went on to say, quote, I have no hesitation in saying that we must consider giving the Arab side a large enough force, including a large enough nuclear force, to persuade Israel that it cannot simply do whatever it wants. That is the policy of my country, that is France. Uh, That's the policy my country pursued in the 70s when it gave Iraq a nuclear force. So there are European countries who are fully against the existence of Israel state. Whatever Israel does is wrong. Whatever the Palestinians do is right. There is no recognition of the horrendous human rights abuses that are taking place on the Palestinian side. And whatever, whenever there is an attack on Israel, a terrorist attack on Israel, it's Israel's fault. And we're seeing that same kind of thinking today taking greater and greater root as people in the media and political left and the politically correct crowd in the U.S., is beginning to blame us for the hostility that uh, is directed toward us from the Arab world. And that is another factor. What is taking place in the Arab world is a natural consequence of Islamic theology. Just read the Quran. The, the theology of the fundamentalists is a theology that's the result of a literal interpretation of the Quran that all non-Islam Islamic people must be uh, destroyed. They must be killed. And in jihad, there is the justification of of murder, of of killing men, women, and uh, children. 
And the Palestinians exemplify this. In fact, what the Palestinians are doing against Israel is really the testing ground for what they want the, the radical Islamicists want to do to the rest of the world. That's where they're learning their techniques. That's where they're learning their propaganda techniques. That's how where they're learning how to twist the media in the West, how to get their, their sympathy. That's where they're learning to develop uh, all of their uh, homicide bombing techniques. And that's how they're uh, be- beginning to uh, gain a sympathy from the West. Uh, what we're seeing is the same kind of thing that happened in Israel in the ancient world during the time when, uh, prior to the Chal- uh, Chaldean or Babylonian invasion in the 7th century B.C., as the Jews were rejecting God, rejecting divine absolutes, what God told them is that they would begin to call good bad and bad good. They would reverse the polarity of their understanding of right and wrong. And this is exactly what we're seeing in the West today, what we're seeing in America today. And you see so many people who look at what is going on in Israel and what the uh, Palestinian Authority does is never wrong and what Israel does is never right. In fact, it's an interesting uh, statistic that from September of 2000, Until May of this year, 961 Israelis were murdered by terrorists. That represents about 0.015% of the Israeli, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim population of 6,400,000 in Israel. And if you were to transfer that to America based on our population of 293 million, that would be the equivalent of having... Uh, 44,000 Americans killed by terrorists on our soil. And we would do something about it. Yet we sit over here and we just tell the Jews, just don't worry about it. Just relax. Don't get upset over all of this. So we we have completely reversed our understanding of right and wrong. Furthermore, Islam fits into the whole framework of the angelic conflict. If you study uh, the Koran and study Islam as we've done in the past, we know that the Koran was revealed to Muhammad by an angel. And yet this wouldn't be an angel from God because what is revealed in, in the Koran is that the enemy is the Jews, the enemy of the Christians, the Jews are considered the Saturday people, we're considered the Sunday people, and in Islamic eschatology, all the Saturday people and all the Sunday people need to be killed. We need to be wiped off the face of the earth. But see, we live in a, in a world now in Western civilization where we've rejected the doctrine of total depravity. Man is not evil. Man is not wicked. They can't really mean that. That's just a few radicals. We can't come to terms with the serious evil that has proliferated in uh, Islamic countries, and the especially under the form of the extremist Wahhabi sect of Islam. And all of the terrorists at 9-11 were Wahhabis, and uh, Osama bin Laden is considered their, their leader, and he's a Wahhabi. And their stated aim and goal is to destroy the West. 
Uh, there's nothing that we can give them to compromise. They want to destroy everything in the West, everything that's positive, and yet we have people who who want to compromise with this, want to find some way to to ameliorate this. And fortunately, we've had an administration that has recognized what their goals are and have sought to stop this over there. And that's why we're in Iraq, so that America has a presence in the Middle East to deal with this. Now, that doesn't mean that everything we've done is right. I'm not saying that. But we, they have at least recognized that this is how to fight the war. We have to have a presence over there. Otherwise, the fighting would be on our own soil. But once again, if you're not operating within a, a framework of understanding accountability, understanding total depravity, understanding some of these spiritual realities, and you're going to make egregious mistakes in foreign policy. Not that we haven't. I mean, the American State Department, because it has always had a problem with uh, an inherent anti-Semitism, and really did during World War II, made egregious policy decisions. I mean, there are horrible things, horrible decisions that were made by our State Department in terms of preventing... Uh, Jewish refugees from coming to America uh, from Europe prior to World War II and during uh, World War II. So once you start breaking those things down, you see the rise of anti-Semitism, you see the breakdown in volition, you see a breakdown in every category of leadership in America. You see, um, you think about political leadership, uh, civil leadership, military leadership, education leadership, leadership in the clergy, there has been a complete breakdown of an understanding of these spiritual realities. So ultimately what happens in politics, at the level of the military, uh, in education, is these leaders simply reflect the corrupt uh, failures of what's happening with the people. We get the leaders that we deserve. And if we're not careful, we will elect leaders this year that will make decisions in relationship to the, the Middle East and what's going on, the war on terrorism, that will end up destroying the, this nation because they're not operating on, the, on a realistic view of the enemy. They do not understand these things. So when you start seeing a breakdown towards the Jews, we have a, a rise of anti-Zionism in America. When you see the rejection of the gospel, and this, is, this happens not only outside the church but inside the church, there's been a tremendous fragmentation that has taken place. See, what happens when a nation goes into negative volition, when any people goes into negative volition, it, it starts polarizing, and people be, begin to be divided. And you see more and more division, and you, everybody divides up into five groups, and they split into ten groups, and then they split again three or four ways. You've got 25 or 30 groups. I was talking to a friend of mine at, uh, when he went to, who I went to seminary with uh, 25 years ago, and I said, you never would have imagined the fragmentation in conservative fundamentalist evangelicalism that you have today 25 years ago. And every year it gets worse. So the clergy can't even lead in a solid direction. So there's a breakdown spiritually. And every time you turn around, there's 15 new ways to live the Christian life. You have a breakdown understanding of the angelic conflict and how that relates to human history. The only hope is the gospel. The only hope 
is the word. But if it is, if we are near the last days, and this is the, uh, we are winding down towards the rapture, and we are seeing things prepare for the early stages of the tribulation period, then that's another factor. We just don't know that. All we can do is operate on the basis of responsibility, operate on the basis of what Scripture Scripture teaches. But freedom is grounded in a proper understanding of reality and accountability toward God. And that ultimately ultimately is resolved at the cross. That is why Paul says in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom begins there. Our freedom is not something that just happened. It was at the cost of Christ's life. And just as he died to set us free spiritually, we also on this Memorial Day honor those who died in the service of this country to give us the freedom that we have to worship him. But there is a warning today. And this warning, this message is part of the Revelation series, is the trends of self-destruction. The trends are increasing in, the, in our society. And if things are, are not reversed, then we as believers need to take great comfort from what we see in the book of Revelation. And despite the fact that we won't be in the tribulation and we won't go through those extreme and harsh judgments, what we learn from Revelation is that God controls history and that things are moving towards resolution and that there is accountability. But we need to also be warned that we may not have the rapture in the next six months or in the next six years or in the next 60 years. And nevertheless, we could see our culture, we could see Western civilization overrun by the fanatics of Islam. And we could lose everything that we have. And if that were to happen, we would go into a dark ages uh, worse than what we had in the, in, during the medieval period. And we have no idea the horrors that we could go through. And the leaders in, in Western Europe and in America are not willing to grapple with the ramifications of what happens if these uh, fanatics uh, have the opportunity to do what they want to do. And I saw a report on the uh, org, which is the Middle East Research something Research Institute, M-E-M-R-I, and they translate, put on, on their website, translations of newspaper reports, speeches, uh, uh, television reports, whatever, uh, media events in the Islamic world. They translate it into English so you can see what the Arabs are really saying, not what Western uh, media uh, says in their doctored-down form. And there was a speech given yesterday by a member of a, of a group of the Iranian government that's designed, that that's, uh, has been uh, overseeing a lot of terrorist training in Iran. And according to this speech, they have missiles aimed at 29 soft spots in Western Europe and in, in America, and they're just waiting for the war to let these things go. We live in a time where we have an increased alert for this summer. We've seen uh, bad news come out of Iraq over the last month or six weeks. It's a time when we can become very discouraged. But we have to remember that Jesus Christ controls history. 
And whatever happens this year, we can't let our happiness, our stability, our emotional state be tied to what happens politically, be tied to what happens economically. We have to let it be grounded in Jesus Christ and his control of history and in the Word of God. And while we still have the opportunity to study the Word, and while you still have the opportunity to strengthen your soul, you need to do that because I fear that dark days may be coming. And if you're not prepared, it will be devastating. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your Word today opportunity to be reminded that you control history, to take a look at the factors that uh, affect history, the uh, ebb and flow of civilizations, cultures, nations. Fathers, we thank you that you are in control of the security of this nation, that you are watching over the events that take place now, that, that all things are working together towards that end-time scenario when ultimately Jesus Christ will return and establish his kingdom. Father, we pray that we might be confident in you, that we might not let our, uh, our souls be shaken by fear as we see what is taking place on the, on the horizon of the world around us or on the stage of uh, national politics. We pray that our confidence will be in you. We pray that we will understand that, that the only hope is Jesus Christ. And, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you have to do is trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you'll have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.